Hi, Gary Zacharias again with The Apologist Bookshelf. I'm almost out of breath from lugging this <laughs> heavy book over here to the uh, podcast site. This is N.T. Wright's book called The New Testament in Its World, and the subtitle, An Introduction to the History, Literature, and Theology of the First Christians. Good heavens, I have no idea how heavy this thing is. I don't want to lift it and find out, but it's about a thousand pages. Makes Rise and Fall of the Third Reich seem like a, a pretty simple book. But this is uh, his magnum opus, I guess you'd say. Craig Blomberg, and I like a lot of his stuff, said this is an amazing volume, one of a kind. Um, see if there's some other people that you might recognize. Craig Keener. This is the New Testament introduction of all New Testament introductions. And, uh, well, other people give, give it a lot of praise as well. But I've got a lot of material in here that I'd like to cover. As you know, N.T. Wright, I, I think you probably have heard that name before, is a professor of New Testament and early Christianity at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland and a research senior research fellow at uh, Wycliffe Hall, Oxford. And he's written something like, uh, I think, 80 books and tons of articles uh, somebody called him the most prolific biblical scholar in a generation and said maybe the most important apologist for the Christian faith since C.S. Lewis. So when he writes something, everybody pays attention. So uh, let me give you an idea just real quickly the what the book covers and so you have a, a feeling for that. And then I want to focus on one part. First section is called Reading the New Testament, things like uh, looking at it as history, looking at the New Testament as literature. See, I find that interesting as a literature major myself, that you can look at the New Testament as literature, uh, the New Testament as theology. And then the second part moves to the world of Jesus and the early church. Third part, Jesus and the victory of God. And then the fourth part, and this is what he's known for, he wrote an entire book, and it's called The Resurrection of the Son of God. Then part five is Paul and the faithfulness of God. Part 6, the Gospels and the Story of God. Part 7, the early Christians and the Mission of God. Part 8, another part I find really interesting, is the making of the New Testament. And then part 9, living the story of the New Testament. So there's the challenge to all of us. So where do you go? What a rich book. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful book too, by the way. Lots of uh, color photos and chapter-at-a-glance information and just places you can go to for further reading. Ah, it's just amazing. This is the one of the richest books I've ever seen. Um, okay, so I wanted to pick chapter 10 here, the first section of uh, the book, uh, chapter 10. Who did Jesus think he was? Now, that's pretty important, isn't it? Uh, he takes his disciples, uh, right, says, to Caesarea Philippi in the northernmost reaches of Israel. And he asks them, who do people say I am? So they come up with things like John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and maybe one of the prophets. They're just echoing what they had heard. But the, the problem was for them was that Jesus acted and spoke like, uh, like different types. He spoke like a rabbi. Then he sounded like a prophet. Sometimes he was a healer. He was a priest. He was a sage. He was a royal leader. He was an exorcist. He was a cynic philosopher. That's capital C-Y-N-I-C, cynic philosopher. He's a miracle worker, but he wasn't exactly like any of them. He was enigmatic, called himself the son of man. So he's a prophet. That's where Wright wants to start. He says the proper starting place for understanding Jesus is a prophet. So he's not just pointing toward God and God's kingdom. He was 
prophesying about himself. He says it was astoundingly self-referential. It's uh, all about Jesus. He had the public persona of a prophet, and so said that's a good place to start. Uh, Jesus told stories, and he acted out things, made it clear that he saw his own work as bringing Israel's history to a climax. He thought he was inaugurating the kingdom. Now think about that. Compare that with other famous religious leaders in different religions. Jesus has a very different mission here. But, Wright says, Jesus, when he told these stories, it showed that he didn't see himself just a prophet, just for his own generation, just one in a long line, like you know Muhammad might have seen himself. He was the prophet. He was the final envoy. He was a beloved son. He was greater than the temple. He was wisdom vindicated, a new David. Now he was sent to warn and gather and restore Israel. So this is a prophet with a capital P. This is not just one more prophet. Next section that uh, Wright talks about is, who is this son of man? Jesus talked about himself as the son of man so often. He said, well, Wright says it could mean just human being. I mean, that's possible. But as he indicates here, and this is what I've heard, is Jesus took a lot of this idea from Daniel 7, where there's some kind of mysterious human figure that has royal and transcendent qualities, and he's actually enthroned beside God, and he's, he's worshipped alongside God. So he, this is connected with God's reign in Daniel 7. He's the heavenly counterpart to some beasts who are designated as kings. That's also in Daniel. And he is given dominion as this human figure. So there's something awfully important about him. So it says, yeah, okay, so son of man can operate as just a Hebrew term for human being, but it seems to connect Jesus to Daniel 7 with messianic overtones, maybe a quasi-divine being. So what do we make out of all this, it said? Well, said the one of... Uh, who's supposed to be like a son of man, embodies God's kingship and reign. He represents the vindication and enthronement of the saints against all these pagan monsters and pagan leaders. So then there's the evidence that suggested son of man is reading, at least according to the Jews, reading a, a messianic uh, attitude as well. So it says, um, Wright says that in a sense, talking about himself as son of man is a cipher. Uh, a clue for the eschatological role that he exercises. He's the divine agent of the kingdom. It's it's more of a role than a title. And the point is that this figure embodies God's own reign. After all, he's seated at his right hand, and he symbolizes God's people, vindicated after suffering. So it does seem like a messianic claim. Okay, well, then that, after Wright gets done with that, he moves along. He talks about the Messiah since he's brought the term up. And he said, uh, during this time period among Jewish authors and groups who did anticipate a Messiah, there were all sorts of opinions. What would he be? Some said a military leader, and they're going to purge the Gentiles, get rid of the Romans. Others said, well, he has transcendent qualities, supernatural powers. Did Jesus claim to be the Messiah? And he writes as well. People say, yeah, of course. But he points out, in the Gospels, Jesus never used the title Messiah to describe himself. At the very most, he is called Messiah and King and Son of David by others, but he doesn't say it himself. He said there are some good reasons to think that Jesus did claim to be a messianic figure. If you look at Isaiah 61, they said there's a, 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 an, a an appeal that Jesus makes in Luke 4 to a spirit-anointed ministry 
in his Nazareth Manifesto, and it says similar uh, uh, echoes of Isaiah in Luke and Matthew about John the Baptist's question, if Jesus is really the one who is to come. In fact, Jesus' response to John comes from Isaiah. What does Jesus say to John? Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. It sounds a lot like he is claiming messiahship there. He appears as well, Wright says, to see himself as possessing a special role in the future kingdom. Jesus comes across as the royal leader-to-be of the restored people. He's a king of a future kingdom. There are all sorts of allusions in the teachings of Jesus to David and Solomon. His final week was certainly manifestly messianic in the triumphal entry. That's Zechariah 9. And uh, Jesus' action in the temple, warning about the destruction, says uh, that sounds messianic. It talks about David's Lord. At the Last Supper, he thinks of himself as Zachariah's smitten shepherd. And then Jesus was executed on the charge of being a messianic pretender. So it says that messianic faith of the early church didn't come out of nothing. This is true. Jesus didn't go around saying, I'm the Messiah. But it said, uh, if you proclaim the kingdom of God in Roman Palestine, if you declare that the day of national restoration is dawning, if you compare yourself to David and Solomon, if you perform signs of messianic deliverance, if you come into Jerusalem on a donkey with people shouting Hosanna to the son of David, and you end up on trial and a messianic charge, being mocked in death as a Jewish king, it does seem pretty obvious he was acting out a messianic role. Well, there's so much good stuff. Let me do another section here, uh, and this is an important one. Did Jesus think he was God? Well, that is important, isn't it? And it says... Uh, it's Jesus and the return of Yahweh to Zion. It says if you look at Isaiah, especially chapters 40 to 55, if you look in Ezekiel, the Psalms, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, over and over they talk about God coming to his temple and bringing judgment as well as salvation. So when Jewish groups spoke about the coming kingdom of God, their reference was not just the kingdom, but God would be coming as king. And it says, this is what Luke has in mind when he portrays Jesus approaching Jerusalem. That's Luke 19. It shows that when Jesus arrives, he's not coming just as Messiah, but as the returning God. Luke presents Jesus in that final journey as a, an attempt to enact and symbolize and personify the whole hope the people had of Yahweh returning to Zion. Well, let's continue here. Got a few more minutes. Jesus said some things about the temple. It's quite plausible at his trial. He was asked if these rumors were true. Is he really making all these seditious statements, attacking God himself by attacking his house? If so, is he claiming to be Messiah? Jesus says, I am. But it says the charge of blasphemy doesn't come from Jesus saying, I am. You know, that tetragrammaton of Yahweh. It says probably it comes from that context of temple subversion and the way Jesus put Psalm 110, verse 1, with Daniel 7, 13. So it's an implication, Wright says, that with this destruction of the temple coming, Jesus himself would take its place. He wasn't just claiming authority over the temple. He was saying that he was now going to be the temple. And then, of course, in his reply to Caiaphas, Jesus clearly identifies himself as that figure in Daniel 7, the Son of Man. And, of course, that would have made people's jaws drop. 
And we have to remember that that whole point, right, says in Daniel 7, is that when God acted in history to deliver his people, the agent through whom he acted would be vindicated, not just patted on the back. He'd be vindicated, be honored. He'd be enthroned and exalted in an unprecedented manner. So Jesus' claim was not that, oh, I'm going to sit on a smaller throne next to God. You know, I'm kind of like second in command. But that he would share the judgment seat of God himself. Wow. So if Jesus thought that Daniel 7 was about him, then what's Jesus doing? He's placing himself as a human being, Israel's representative within the orbit of divine sovereignty, claiming a place within the divine regency of God Almighty. And that's how early Christians, early Christians saw this. And then he puts a postscript toward the end of this chapter. He said this prophetic action of Jesus embodied the reality. He didn't just announce Yahweh was returning to Zion. He in, uh, intended to enact or symbolize and personify that event. And he believed and said in a coded biblical language that he would be vindicated, that he would share the throne of Israel's God. So that should give you at least a feel for what this book is like. I highly recommend it. It's probably something that uh, you would dip into occasionally. Reading straight through might be pretty challenging and overwhelming. Uh, again, there may be some used of, copies of these out. It hasn't been out that long, but uh, it's a, a pricey book. It's a, <laughs> a rich book, but it's endlessly useful and, and uh, valuable. So uh, take a look sometime. Again, it's called The New Testament in Its World. Author is N.T. Wright with uh, Michael Bird. So thanks again for listening, and uh, let's do another podcast soon.